Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. pray with me church god thank you for the reality that you are lord of all that we can sing of our redemption and of our blessed redeemer god i give you praise uh, for the lifted voices of your congregation it's a it's a little foretaste a, a little anticipation of the the voices that will be united as we sing your praise in eternity god As we turn our attention to your word, we pray by way of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would open our minds to see the beautiful things in your word, and that most of all, we would see Christ, and Lord, that we would would trust him more as a result of having been here today, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm chapter 25, as our our instrumentalists and musicians make their way off the platform, I'm going to give you the opportunity to find your way to Psalm 25. Uh, I had planned to preach this psalm in one week, and this is week three, so welcome back to Psalm 25 3.0. I hope that the time in the psalm has been even half as beneficial for you as it has been for me. I, I really didn't anticipate what God was going to do in my heart, um, which shame on me, I, I should have come with greater expectation, but uh, in, in week one we saw that the psalm is of David, it's not only written by David, but it also prophetically captures the voice of the coming Messiah, and we, we know that because that is how the New Testament writers interpret the Davidic psalms, as uh, in some way a prophecy of the life of Christ and of His atoning death and his victory. We also know that, that David is writing in a season of attack, and he wants to remain faithful during this season of testing, and he therefore sets his hope on God and not on the phony substitutes that his enemies would want him to pursue. Pride and power, prestige, position, education, career advancement, financial security, lust, greed, all these, all these lesser gods that the world wants to, to hold out for us like candy to accept rather than leaning on God himself. And, and to follow the Lord or to trust the Lord means we must follow the Lord. We actually have to pursue his ways in a wicked world. We have to trust him not just once and walk an aisle and sign a card and make a decision to get baptized. We, we've got to trust him daily, moment by moment, seeing moments of adversity and moments of attack as opportunities to know more of who God is to follow Him more closely, no matter how challenging, He is our reward. And then in verse 7, he prays that, that God would not remember His sins and His transgressions. And in verse 11, he again accounts for His great iniquity. And yet in verses 8 and 10, he's, he's confident that this great God will somehow atone for His sins, will somehow forgive Him because the Lord is good and He is upright. And then in verses 12 through 15, which is where we'll enter into the text today, David transitions from talking about his great sin to again describing the Lord and the man who fears 
the Lord. So if you missed the last two weeks, you are now caught up in Psalm 25. Congratulations, all right? Psalm 25, verse 12 is where we're going to break into the text today. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord? Well, to start, we'll continue through verse 15. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. The first thing I want you to see in the psalm today, in verses 12 through 15, is we must be rightly related to the man who fears the Lord. David doesn't begin with who are the men who fear the Lord. He asks, who is the man, the the one man who fears the Lord? He understands that the fear of the Lord opens the door to be instructed by the Lord. The one who fears God will be led by God. The, The fear of the Lord, as Wilson writes, is an attitude that acknowledges one's absolute dependence upon Him. That's the fear of the Lord. Longman adds this, to fear God is to recognize you are not the center of the universe. That's hard for us to figure out, isn't it? We're born into the world and we've got somebody feeding us and changing our diaper and coming to get us out of the crib and we start to cry and everybody's paying attention to us and soothing us and making us calm down. The world begins as though we are the center of the universe or so it seems, but the fear of the Lord It precipitates, or it produces, rather, this understanding in our lives that we're not the center of the universe. Life is a vapor. God is the center of the universe. Longman continues, the fear of God engenders proper humility in a person that makes them teachable. This fear is not an emotion that makes us run away from God, but rather to persist in His awesome presence and to listen to His instructions. And I I don't know how to illustrate how this this fear concept works that makes us want to linger with someone rather than run away from them. But I I was thinking about it this week. I was like, how do I illustrate this? And I thought back to when I thought I might become a good basketball player. It didn't happen. My, my daughter's hands are as big as mine are. I'm 5'10 and shrinking every day. I never could dunk a basketball, not even a ping pong ball. I could barely touch the rim, but I wanted to be good at basketball. And I spent hours in my driveway emulating the moves and the shots of Michael Jordan. I, I figured out how to make his classic fadeaway. I would work on my crossover, but my left hand was never as good as my right hand. I just couldn't get there. In my brain, I knew what to do, but my body just wouldn't execute. Anybody ever been there? I tried. But in my mind's eye, I could see and envision one day Michael Jordan would be so impressed with my efforts to emulate him that he would come and give me a private session in my driveway. It, it, It never happened, by the way. Let me ask you a question. What if Michael Jordan had showed up? I wouldn't have become Michael Jordan, but I can tell you I would have paid attention to what he had to teach me. I would have been locked in to every ounce of what he had to say. 
how much more should it be with God? Who did come? He left the throne room of heaven. He left the glorious praise of angels to wrap himself in our humanity and to give us his word. And we would treat his word like it's no big deal. He came to teach us. How much more ought we fear him? Ought we revere him? Ought we love him? Ought we want to be with him and to hang on to his every word? The one who fears the Lord, him will, that man will be shown the way to choose. Verse 12. In a world where where life often seems like there are no good options, the Lord is right there with the one who fears Him, showing Him the way to go, the action to take, the stand to make, the prayer to pray, the thought to pursue. The one who fears Yahweh will be led by Yahweh. It doesn't get any better than that. The one who fears God will be led by God. The one who made it all, who holds the universe, without whom his holding the universe, everything would fly apart. He will guide the one who fears him. Look down at verse 14. It's not just that he will guide you in some abstract way. I've I've seen t-shirts and little notes that say the Bible is God's instruction manual for life. And, and, And that's not a bad thought. It's just an incomplete thought. Because it's more than God's instruction manual for life. It's where you encounter the living Lord of the universe. I don't like instruction manuals. When I I get something I've got to put together, the last thing I look at is the instructions. I want to be able to put that thing together on my own. And then I'm like, well, I guess i got to get the instructions. I don't understand how this lag bolt works. It's more than an instruction manual. It is the, is the place you commune with God. Look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord. We don't think of fear and friendship going together. But they do with God. The one who reveres God, who longs for God, who desires God, will have the friendship of God. The word literally means the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear Him. A deeper understanding of the gospel is there. An understanding of who Christ is is there, of His salvation, knowing God and His agenda in the world, and having that come together in your heart. It is there for the one who really fears God. You say, well, I just don't get the gospel, I just don't understand church. Have you lingered with God for more than five minutes? Okay, quiet time Christianity, where I, I read my daily bread and I get my little verse and then I forget God for the rest of the day. God doesn't want that. He wants you to be his friend all day long. As Wilson writes, Yahweh is an intimate confidant and reveals his covenant to those who fear him. Those who fear the Lord have no need to fret about what to do. The Lord gives his friendship to those who fear him. Intimacy, connection, clear direction to those who look to the Lord, no matter how difficult your present enemy attack seems, even the enemy of death, he will, do you see it in verse 15, he will pluck your feet from the net. And if he will pluck your feet from whatever net you face, he will even raise your body from the grave. It is this confidence that flows from a proper fear of God and which swallows whole the fear of death and leads us to delight in giving ourselves over to God who has given us Himself. It is here in intimacy with God where we begin to understand His instruction. 
discovering the joy that comes when we live our lives as an offering to the Lord. Did you know your whole life is to be presented and lived as an offering to God who gave you His Son? Your singing is an offering. Your reading of the Word and waiting to commune with God is an offering. Your giving of your tithes and offerings is an offering. Every aspect of life to be given over to this God who gives you Himself in friendship. And knowing this, knowing this friendship of the Lord means that our souls may abide in well-being. Do you see that in verse 13? The word well-being is is the same word in Hebrew for for good. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 to describe the goodness of God's creation. The good that God created us to enjoy will be enjoyed not by the one who serves his enemies, but instead by the one who fears the Lord. Are you serving your enemies or serving the Lord today? Are you more afraid of not getting that promotion than you are of glorifying God? What is your controlling fear? Who dictates what you serve? And notice in verse 13 that the offspring of the one who fears the Lord, the man who fears the Lord, will inherit the land or the earth. Verse 13. This is an interesting phrase to me. Jesus in Matthew 5.5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It is those who are meek who fear the Lord, who submit to the Lord, who will inherit His creation, who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. There will be a day when the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of God's glory and only those who have a proper fear of God remain. And in verse 13, these people are very interestingly to me called the offspring of the one who fears God. Now, we know this can't just be biological offspring because David's sons were a mixed bag, weren't they? Some of David's sons didn't fear the Lord. So David is is writing about one who fears the Lord and his offspring are going to inherit the land or the earth, same word in the Hebrew, and yet some of his sons, we suspect, did not inherit the land or the earth. So what's going on here? I'm jumping ahead to the conclusion of the psalm for a moment. But here's what's going on. The offspring aren't biological offspring. They are offspring by faith in the true Son of God who perfectly fears the Lord. You see, to to fear the Lord, you got to have a different spiritual DNA than the DNA that you were born with. You were not born as a God-fearer. You were not born looking to Yahweh for hope and purpose and meaning. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Chapter 4, but God did something. What did He do? He sent His Son who perfectly feared the Father all the way to the cross and He obeyed for your redemption. And unless you trust in the one who perfectly feared God, you'll never be changed on the inside to rightly fear God and you'll not be the offspring of Jesus Christ, born again, transformed, on the inside, equipped to fear God rightly. Only through faith in Jesus can you be the offspring of the man who fears the Lord. Are y'all here this morning? That's good stuff. I mean, it's right there in the Word. There's one who fears the Lord, and he's got descendants. Who are his descendants? All who trust in the Son. And in verse 15, David returns to 
to speaking of himself. He is a God-fearer because he's looking to the ultimate son, fixing his eyes not upon his problems, not upon his temptations, not upon the excuses that the world would give him, but upon the Lord. Do you see that in verse 15? First line, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Does that not sound like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? We should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And if God can raise His Son from the dead, He will surely raise us from the dead, and we can surely endure suffering in this lifetime, knowing that the Son of God will not disappoint. He will keep His promise, and the one who is the firstborn from the dead has many sons yet to raise. Verse 16 through 20, David says, Turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. In verses 16 through 21, we, we see uh, many imperatives. God, David is, is actually, as he prays to God, he's, he's giving commands. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. Bring me out. Consider. Forgive. Consider. Guard. Deliver. All in the imperative. God, do it! In this season of attack, in this season of adversity, God, move in my life. Now, who is David to command God? He's just a man. But the use of commands shows to us the the desperation of, of David's heart and soul and desire to be delivered. He is desperate. In verse 19, we see that whatever attack he's facing, it includes violent hatred from many foes. Violent hatred. For many foes. The word for violent hatred in Hebrew is the word Hamas. Usually it refers to bloodletting of a particularly offensive sort. It is Hamas that corrupted the earth in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11 and 13, the, before God sent the flood in order to, to cleanse the earth through the flood. So, so now David is facing whatever attack he's facing. Whatever threats he's facing, they are, they are mixed with violent intent. These are real threats. His life is in real danger. And what does David long for most in the middle of the threat of violent attack? Do you see it? He wants the presence of God. The first thing he prays is not God make the violent attack go away. Instead, it is Turn to me. Literally, face me, Lord. Look at me, Lord. God, in the middle of what I'm facing, what I need more than anything, what I need first and foremost is that I would behold God. Don't be distant from me. Don't be veiled behind the problems. And then he adds this, be be gracious to me. And what sort of 
kindness and generosity and grace does David want? Once again, he wants to know the nearness of God. He's essentially saying, here's what David's saying, and maybe you could say with David this morning, God, it's really hard in my present circumstances. I don't know what your present circumstances are, but God does. God, it is hard in my present circumstances to feel your closeness. But what I desire more than anything in life is your closeness. David knows that the Lord is near. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. But he wants to experience the reality of the Lord's presence. How do we know this? Verse 16, the little word for is an indication of purpose. For I am lonely and afflicted, or I am poor, I am humble. He knows that he needs to keep trusting the Lord in this moment, but he senses the weakness of his flesh. He senses the weakness of his humanity, and before he prays that God would deliver him from the storm, he prays that God would be with him in the storm. The end of the storm will mean peace, But before he even gets to the end of the storm, he wants the peace of the presence of God right now. Is anybody there this morning? In the middle of a storm, you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And you've been praying that the storm would end. And maybe God is first and foremost leading you to pray that you would know God more. In verse 17, we we see David's inner troubles. He faces violent enemies and he he prays first about his own heart. The opposition and threats that he faces on the outside are are troubling him on the inside. This word that means trouble or distress or anxiety or tribulation, they're, they're all welling up within his heart. And so he begs God, it's again a command in verse 17, bring me out of my distresses. Which distresses? There's a lot of distresses in this psalm. Is he talking about the distress of the enemy attack outside? Is he talking about the loneliness that he feels as he's walking through this adversity? Or is he talking about the, the sin that he feels like he carries in this moment, wondering, God, is it, is it something that I've done that I don't experience your greatness and your glory in this moment? Which distress is he praying about? Yes. All of it. All of it. His sin, his emptiness, his loneliness, the attack that he faces. God, deliver me totally, completely rescue me. In verse 18, David asked the Lord to consider or look upon his affliction and trouble. Affliction, again, means poverty or humility. It implies a position of being powerless to change your circumstances. Anybody here in a situation that you're powerless to change? There's nothing you can do about it. You're totally dependent upon God to change your husband's heart or your wife's heart or your kid's heart who's wayward or your financial situation. You've done all you can do. You're working as hard as you can, but your promotion is totally in the hands of someone else. The new job opportunity, you've sent out resumes galore, but it's really up to God. God, I'm handing it all over to you. Bring me out of my affliction. Hannah, who was barren, and longed 
to have a son and to be a part of God's saving plan in the world. She was barren. And what does she say to God in 1 Samuel chapter 1? God, look on my affliction. It means God, move in my life. Change what's going on for your glory. Trouble in verse 18 refers not to just trouble in an abstract sense, but to toil or to misery that comes from a wearying physical or mental effort. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? It just consumes your thought. It consumes your body. God, what am I going to do? How will this end? How will I get out of this? God, deliver me from these things. David understands he can't endure without the Lord. And then he adds this, forgive or bear, lift away all of my sins. The only way to face the trouble of loneliness within and the threats without is with a clean conscience before God so that he could know the nearness of his God. And in verse 20, David returns to the issue of the shame his enemies desire for him. He prays that even in the face of violent attack that the Lord would keep or guard his soul and his life and deliver him. The situation seems impossible. He is feeling lonely. And what does he do? He does what we should do. He tells the Lord how he feels and what he needs. Hey God, this is how I feel and what I need is you. And oh by the way, if you could deliver me, that'd be awesome too. But if you choose to let this storm remain, at least let me have you. And I don't know what storm you bring with you into this facility or the gymnasium or online this morning. But when we close, and and we'll do that, we have one more point yet to go. Sorry for those who are hungry, but we do have one point left. But in a moment, we're going to have the opportunity as we sing a song called, Lord, I need you to tell the Lord we need him. We're going to sing And confess together as a congregation that our greatest need is not that our troubles would disappear, but that we would know the face of God. David David says, more than anything in this moment, I need you. Don't forget me. Don't let me falter. Deliver me. Why? I have no other reason to give. Do you see it there in verse 20? For I take refuge in you. Not because I'm good, not because I'm great, but God, I'm trusting in you. Even in this season of adversity, even in this valley of affliction, I trust you. We hear echoes of what David will say in Psalm 46.1. You are my refuge and strength and ever-present help in a time of trouble. And then David closes his psalm, verse 21 and 22. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God. Out of all his troubles. The last thing I want you to see in this psalm is we must look to Jesus for protection and redemption. Protection is the word preserve in verse 21. Redemption is the word redeem in verse 22. Psalm 25, as I've worked through Psalm 25, it it is presented for me a bit of a mystery And and upon reflection, the only resolution to the mystery of Psalm 25 is Jesus Christ. You can't really understand Psalm 25 without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. David, 
clearly faces enemy attack and his enemies attend his bodily harm, his death, his shame. But, but David dies ultimately a relatively peaceful death. David, as king of God's people, is in the right. The, the Lord has anointed him king. And then in verse 20, David mentions, excuse me, in verse 7, 11, and 18, David mentions his sins and transgressions and iniquity. But then in verse 21, he says, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So what's going on? Whose integrity is preserving David? Is it the Lord's integrity or is it his integrity? Is it this relative righteousness compared to the people who are pursuing him? What is going on? David doesn't tell us whose righteousness is in view. In verse 8, he told us the Lord is upright. So we know that he thinks the Lord is the righteous one. But is he speaking of himself or of the Lord? His, his emphasis on integrity and righteousness in verse 21 is critical. Because he's, he's showing us that he understands that unless we have integrity and uprightness and righteousness, that we can't know God, we can't be used by God. Jesus says the standard of acceptance in heaven is the perfection of the Heavenly Father in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Unless you are perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, how in the world will David stand when he's confessed sins in 7 and 11 and 18? He needs integrity and uprightness to preserve him, and it must be an, an, an integrity and uprightness that he possesses, but he can't possess it because he's a sinner. So what's going on? Here's what's going on. David is giving us a picture of the king who is coming. He is showing us the greater king named Jesus, Savior, Deliverer, who would be tempted in every way as we are. He would face not just the potential of violence, he would be violently crucified on the cross, and yet even all the way to the cross, he would not sin. Indeed, as he went to the cross, he would do it with joy for the love of his Father and the opportunity to redeem God's people, Israel, out of their sin. How could this be possible? Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God would make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That he would take our sin like it was his and that he would bear the punishment and the wrath that was due our sin as though it were his own so that our sins could be forgiven he would experience great violence and in those moments though God would seem distant Jesus would cry out my God my God why have you forsaken me Psalm 22 verse 1 but he would know how the psalm ends it ends in victory that his father would not forsake him that his father would accept his sacrifice that in becoming sin for us in receiving the violent attacks of the world in suffering in our place it would give way to the resurrection on the third day so that we through his death and resurrection, could have the righteousness of God, which is only through faith in Christ. Jesus 
is the answer to Psalm 25. As he bears the sin upon his shoulders and receives the mocking and the flogging and the nails in his hands. And he wonders, God, where are you? It says, turn to me and deliver me. God answers his prayer on the third day. And because Christ has conquered the grave, if you will trust in him, you can become the offspring of Jesus and rightly fear the Lord and know the friendship of God Almighty. You've got to be rightly related to the man who came to stand in your place. And so this morning I have a question. Do you know this king? Do you know this one who in the face of the cross did not back down for the love of the Father and for the love of the sinners he was sent to save? If you don't know him, your greatest need this morning is that you would know the friendship of the Lord. That He would turn His face to you. That you would turn from your sin and embrace Him as your Savior. So if you're a believer, and you know God this morning, we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. And if you're not a believer, and you know that your greatest need in this hour and for all of eternity is to know the face of God, even in the face of your problems, we'd invite you to come as we stand and sing together. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we need you. We need you so desperately. God, the world gives us so many ways to paper over our problems and to to be distracted. God, from our loneliness, we can we can scroll Facebook, we can we can binge watch TV, we can we can spend money on things that just don't satisfy. God, the world will give us endless ways to satisfy the longings of our heart and they all come up empty, but there's only one who does not and it is to know God. It is to fear and follow God. And God, we recognize we can only do that because the one who came and followed you perfectly offers to take our sin and give us his righteousness in its place. And so God, for anyone today who does not have the perfection of the Father through faith in Jesus, who was perfect all the way to and through through the cross. God, we pray in Jesus' name that you would draw people to saving faith today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.